I'm Adam Seafew. And I'm still Scott Stern. And this is S2D, <laughs> the Symptoms Diagnosis Podcast. What are we doing today, Scott? Well, if memory serves me correctly, we are doing jaundice and abnormal liver enzymes. Another one of those classic medicine differential diagnoses, right? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you know, I've got a story about this one. Are you ready? Oh, God, go ahead. So this goes back to when I was a third-year medical student. Okay. Um, we had a, like, a little clerkship group with our clerkship director. Uh, I won't give the year of this, but it was a long time ago. And I remember the clerkship director asked me for differential diagnosis of abnormal liver function tests, okay? And I gave a differential diagnosis, and I named like, I don't know, 12, 15 things. I was so impressed with myself. And the um, clerkship director looked at me and said, huh, if you can give me 10 more, maybe you'll get a residency spot. Oh my God. <laughs> um, so oh. anyway, that has stuck with me. That reminds me of I was uh, once in when I was in medical school, the person who was running our class on disease that I now yeah. run, who's yeah. a biochemist, yeah. asked me to graph out the pathway of bilirubin metabolism. And I must have looked like a complete idiot. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> well, I now know that, but I didn't at the time. Oh, God. Okay, so you're the expert of the day. Do you have a case to present to me? I do. Uh, so actually, I remember this very well because it wasn't all that long ago, maybe two years ago. Um, and a woman came in to see me, it was 65 years ago, and she said, I'm really having a problem, Dr. Stern, can you help me? And I said, sure. And she goes, well, I don't know what's going on. I'm really, really itchy. And the other thing I've noticed is my stools don't look right. They're really light. And it looks like my skin is kind of yellow. <laughs> so she served you a differential diagnosis on a platter. <laughs> on a platter it was. Um, is that all you're going to give to me? I think that's plenty, actually, <laughs> but go ahead. Okay. Um, so I guess what I would start with is uh, I'm going to pull way back, okay? And I'm going to say, jaundice, you should not jump right into this is jaundice, right? You should not jump into, you know, yellow skin equals jaundice, right? We all have stories about keratinemia and things like that. Um, my daughter, when she was little, ate just carrots and sweet potatoes and had a orange hue to her. Um, so wait, you got to tell them how to distinguish that before you go on. So you know that. So, so how I do you, would say right. sclerolicterus. Right? right, exactly. Uh, and so this person, I'll assume that her sclera are a little bit ecteric, but also she's got itchy skin, which speaks for hyperbilirubinemia, and she's got pale stool as well. So I guess, you know, the one other question I might ask with what you've told me so far is, has she noticed any difference in her urine? Her urine is dark. Her urine is dark. Okay. So the kind of classic differential diagnosis, right, for jaundice, or we could even say for abnormal liver function tests, but we'll say abnormal liver function tests and then jaundice would be, you know, is this conjugated hyperbilirubinemia or unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. You've sort of told me that it's conjugated hyperbilirubinemia because she's got dark urine. And that means that it's not just unconjugated bilirubin, which doesn't get filtered by the kidneys, I guess, because it's bound to albumin. You're, right. the, you're the expert here. Okay. Right. So this has to be um, conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. And then the next step in that differential diagnosis is to say, you know, is this an intrahepatic obstruction or is this an extrahepatic obstruction, right? Um, this this kind of reeks to me of an extrahepatic obstruction, given that we're hearing dark stools as well. Light stools. Oh, sorry, light stools as well, because 
basically nothing's getting through where if it's intrahepatic i generally think of people you know they've got they've got an overload of the conjugated bilirubin but they're still spilling some into the stool so that makes me worried that she's got an anatomic obstruction um you know and that could be just about anything right i think about bile duct disease certainly benign or malignant you know benign stuff stricture stones malignant basically horrible stuff, right? Pancreatic cancer, um, cholangiocarcinoma. And so I'd like to hear more about her, which will probably put me off, but I'd like to hear about medications, past medical history. I'm certainly going to ask for labs, and I'm probably going to ask for an ultrasound to see what her right upper quadrant looks like. Great. So uh, otherwise, she's been pretty healthy in the past. She is a smoker, but otherwise had not really had any significant problems. I had the same thought you did. It was painless, which made me more worried. Sure. Um, why would that, why, why do you say sure? Tell me. Well, I mean, I think painless jaundice is, you know, classic for, um, for pancreatic cancer. Um, smoking raises your risk for pancreatic cancer, though. I mean, that doesn't raise it enough that it's like lung cancer. So that would make me more concerned. I guess sitting in the room with her, I'd ask her, I was going to say some of the fun questions about pancreatic cancer, but that sounds um, sort of awful. But, you know, um, migratory thrombophlebitis, you know, has this woman had any superficial thrombophlebitis recently? Depression, um, I actually learned just rereading some stuff before this podcast. I don't know if this data is any good or not, but there's a lot of depression at sort of occurring in the months before a diagnosis of pancreatic Which cancer. is really interesting, right? Which is really interesting. Yeah, so she didn't have that, but I, literally she told me this one line, and I've never walked out of a room after one line and thought, wow, that's pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Because like you said, if it was a stone in the common bile duct, more often than not, they have some sure. pain with it. Um, her LFTs showed pretty much uh, what we might expect. Her CBC was unremarkable. Her bilirubin was 8.5. Her ALKFOS was quite high at 280. Her AST and ALT were only minimally elevated at 55 and 50. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think the right answer is a red upper quadrant ultrasound at this point. But to be honest with you, I mean, I'm so suspicious of this, of what's going on here, that I might go right to the better test, you know, I, I might say. And these days, you know, we can get these tests so quickly that I could probably get an ultrasound today. I could probably get an MRCP, you know, in the next two days. So I might go right to that. And actually, as we'll come to later, the MRCP is the better test. Even the CT scan's not that great at the common bile duct. So an MRCP is a test of choice. And I was pretty sure we were going to see a pancreatic carcinoma. Fortunately, what we saw was a mass at the ampulla of Otter. Okay. Um, And she was then referred to one of our surgical colleagues. Right. So maybe we'll stop there. Okay. That could be... Good or it could be terrible, um, but we'll we'll find out. So your job now is to um, tell me about some of the really key points. We usually do five key points about diagnosing abnormal liver function tests or jaundice, and you want to start up? So, I mean, the first step in anybody who looks jaundice is to distinguish whether it's conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, which is called direct bilirubin, or whether it's unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Um, That can be done with a simple blood test, although, as you've alluded to, an astute clinician can also look at the urine and tell because unconjugated bilirubin is tightly bound to albumin, as you said. And albumin is too big to be filtered at the glomerulus. So, so unconjugated bilirubin does not show up in the urine, and those patients typically have normal colored urine. Additionally, most of the patients who have unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia are not associated with marked elevations in bilirubin. You know, hemolysis doesn't typically give you a bilirubin above 5, 
nor does Jobert is the other common cause of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. And so typically those patients have subtle scleral icterus, but they're not orange like pumpkins, frankly. Right. Um, and so often right in the room, you'll have a good sense of whether someone has conjugated hyperbilirubinemia or unconjugated. And as I've said, unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia is most commonly Jobert's or hemolysis. There are other things that can do it, as we'll talk about later, but that's certainly the first point. I think you might be soft today because I think you may have insinuated that I am an astute clinician. I'll come back and correct that later. <laughs> okay. All right. So, you know, the next point is what do you do then when it's conjugated hyperbilirubinemia? And really... You so you've sort of said unconjugated, generally a pretty simple differential diagnosis. So you're going to kind of dive into conjugated. I am exactly okay. right. You know, I should mention that severe end-stage liver failure can cause unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia, but that's normally obvious. Now, conjugated hyperbilirubinemia is more complicated. And basically, I like to break it down into two big groups, and that is hepatocellular disease, aka some form of hepatitis, or some obstruction, and that obstruction can be intrahepatic or extrahepatic. And actually, simple blood tests can help with this. So most of the hepatocellular diseases, um, hepatitis, cause marked increases in AST and ALT much more than ALK-FAS. Because as those liver cells die, they release AST and ALT. And as they die, what happens is the architecture of the liver gets disrupted. And so the bilirubin that was already conjugated, this used to confuse me as a student, the bilirubin's already been conjugated and is in those bile ducts. But as those cells die that line the bile ducts, that conjugated bilirubin leaks out and now goes into the central circulation. Right. There's the potential to get confused because you do have hepatocellular injury and you might think that you've injured so many hepatocytes that you're no longer conjugating bilirubin at all. Um, but I guess, you know, the liver is a big organ. The liver's, uh, you know, capacity, conjugating capacity is enormous, that even a really sick liver still conjugates bilirubin. Right. And the way we define it is over 50% right. is right. conjugated, that we're going to call it conjugated. So they will have increases in unconjugated bilirubin, but usually it's still more than 50% conjugated. It, although, again, if the liver is completely failed, right. it's unconjugated. Good. So hepatitis to recoup uh, will cause elevations in ALT and AST more than ALK-FAS, whereas obstruction, which can be intrahepatic or extrahepatic, causes ALK-FAS elevations more than AST and ALT. So those blood tests are often really helpful. Good. And intrahepatic uh, cholestasis, I feel like that's getting into the weeds a little bit because very often when people think about cholestatic jaundice, they immediately go to sort of macroscopic obstruction of the biliary tree. But you have to recognize that that portion of the differential diagnosis includes a lot of intrahepatic and it's worth you know, looking at the antibiotics, you know, looking right. at the medications um, which cause that, because we see that all the time with really sick people in the hospital. Right. And also things that metastasize to the liver can yes. cause this. As you know, lots of nodules in the liver can do the same. It looks biochemically like an extrahepatic obstruction, but the common bile duct is normal Good. because it's a tiny bile duct that are right, getting right, blocked right. up, right? Lots of little tiny bile ducts right. getting blocked. I think you're up to point three. So once we get to the point where someone looks like they have an obstructive pattern, the ALK-FAS and the GGT is elevated, then simply you need to image 
those bile ducts. And, you know, there's a variety of tests, ultrasound, CT, or MRCP. And as we already discussed, you know, MRCP clearly gives you the best definition of those. And so um, that's very helpful. If the bile ducts are dilated, you have an extrahepatic obstruction. And if they're not, you've got some intrahepatic cause. Right. And I, I think we've already talked enough about the testing, but it really, this is where the test you choose depends not only on your differential diagnosis, but and the severity of illness of the patient, of where you are, how rapidly you need evaluation, right? So if you're in the emergency room with someone who, you know, you think has cholangitis or has is coming in with cholecystitis, say, you know, boy, just slap an ultrasound on that person, right? And you've got a test which has given you a ton of information. While if you're with a fairly well person, at least well in the short term, like your person in clinic, you know, maybe you have the luxury of getting the best test first. You know, I think that's a clinical pearl worth saying, and I'm going to say it now because we didn't, okay. <laughs> we weren't planning on saying it. Which is really jaundice and fever is a different animal. Yeah. So jaundice and fever, we you know, can be hepatitis. But your point about cholangitis, ascending cholangitis, is really important because those people are life-threateningly sick, and the amount of uh, bacteria that ascend into the liver and cause high grades of bacteremia is frightful. As a matter of fact, the fastest blood culture that ever returned positive I ever saw was somebody in cholangitis. So I think when you see fever and jaundice, you need to jump all over that and be treating those people while you're figuring it out because that's that's really terrifying. Well, it's one of the few diseases that for me and any pathologist who's listening to this podcast, I'm not sure why anybody would, <laughs> would probably have a complete fit over this. But when I see cholangitis, I really think back to the histology of the liver, and I just think of the pus backing up into those sinusoids and recognizing that that is going straight into the bloodstream. Right? Absolutely right. We should, um, you know, we're on podcast 17 here, um, and we have, I don't know, somewhere 25 to 30 like classic symptoms that we're going to cover, and right. we have no idea what the future holds beyond that. Um, I guess we never have any idea what the future holds. <laughs> but, um, um, but as you say, you know, jaundice and fever, rash and fever, it'd be interesting kind of combinations of, of Oh, that'd be fun. Combination day. Yeah. Maybe sometime this summer. Um, all right. So the fourth point is, you know, having broken it down into groups now of hepatocellular diseases and then intra and extra hepatic obstruction, we can really kind of focus the differential diagnosis. And so, uh, you know, let's just recoup that for everyone to be clear. So unconjugated uh, hyperbilirubinemia is normally Jobert's hemolysis or severe liver failure. Conjugated with a hepatocellular picture, some usually some form of hepatitis. Now, the most common thing that we see in the clinic every day is minimal elevations in ALT and AST due to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, but other things when they're more marked, viral hepatitis, alcoholic hepatitis, are definitely one and two. And then there's autoimmune hepatitis, uh, drug-induced hepatitis, um, ischemia in the very sick patient, typically in the ICU, and cirrhosis. And then a variety of obscure things that I thought were common as a medical student. I remember having a patient as a medical student where I thought Wilson's was number one on the differential. And I'm pretty sure Wilson's is never number one on the differential. Yeah. And then the conjugated and obstructive patterns, if it's extrahepatic, thinking stones and tumors primarily. And if it's intrahepatic obstructive pattern, thinking, and I've seen this many times, infiltrative tumors, whether it's colon cancer or lymphoma or something of that sort, primary biliary cirrhosis, and then cirrhosis, toxins, and sepsis. Good. 
Uh, one thing I would say, and, and I know you know this, since this is what we do all the time, um, but those people in the clinic with minimally elevated liver function tests, certainly non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, NASH, whatever we want to call it, is is very common. The other things you know to really think about with that group, um, hepatitis C, commonly presented like that in the past. Now that we're screening people, I less feel like so, we right. see less of that. Alcohol, right? right? Even the people who are just having, you know, two, three drinks a night, you'll certainly see that. And acetaminophen use, right? There'll right. be people who are using a lot of Tylenol. Um, I've had people, surprisingly, who are, you know, training for a 10K who come in with abnormal liver function tests just because they're going through three or four grams of Tylenol. Well, day. that's a really good point and that we're going to come back to later because okay. it's often accidental. Okay. But I think that you're right about that. And Hep C, you're right. You know, as you know, the liver test can fluctuate between normal yeah. or not. So simply repeating it later and finding it's normal doesn't release you from the obligation of having made sure it wasn't Hep C because right. it can still be doing uh, damage. So I think... That's important. I'm not always sure what to tell the person who's having one or two drinks whose ALT and AST is 40. You know, what do you do with that? I'll tell you what I do with it. What do you do with that? I think that we accept, what, up to three times the upper limit of normal for statins. And I think it's a whole lot more pleasurable to have a drink or two a night. And so I tell people, look, if I'm going to accept it for statins, I'm going to accept it for a beer. So if I'm having one beer a night and it's one times normal and I can have two beers a night and it's two times, all right, we'll let that one go. I'm certainly not going to talk about your... <laughs> well, I, I, we could talk about my margarita use, but that's a separate podcast. But that's what we could do. What? Never mind. All right. So um, the fifth key point is what happens when it's just the alkaline phosphatase that's elevated. And it's worth remembering that alkaline phosphatase also comes from bone. Um, and, you know, we certainly have had two patients who present with metastatic bony disease with the, that's the first clue. And so if the alphos is elevated, I usually get a GGT. If the GGT is also elevated, I'm more concerned that it's coming from the liver and I'm going to image the liver. Whereas if the alphos alone is ice elevated and the GGT is normal, I'm often going to do a bone scan. And maybe just a pitch for the more benign causes of isolated, elevated bone alphos, right? You certainly see that with Paget's disease. Right. You see that with primary hypercalcemia. So there's a whole differential that goes with that too. And I think you're right. I mean, we all fear that, oh my God, is this person presenting with you know, metastatic bony disease that's that's coming to my attention first with isolated elevated alphos that we see. Fortunately, most of the time it's something more benign and explainable, but you're certainly right. You can't you can't blow that off. You know, the other thing I'd mention while we're on alphos yeah. is that you don't get the marked elevations in alphos that you get in ALT and AST. So if, you know, the ranges vary from hospital to hospital, but, you know, if you say the average upper limit of normal is 150, an alphos of 300 would really make my eyes pop. Yeah. Uh, whereas we get ALT and AST elevations all the time that are in that range. Right, right. Good point. Good point. So why don't we get back to the case? I feel like we did a lot of it. We did. Um, um, so we were at the stage. She's in your office. We talked about all the lab tests. And oh, yes. So she's got the mass at the ampulla vater. So I guess this could be, this could be basically anything, right? It could be of, you know, an intestinal origin, right? So she could just have a duodenal polyp. She could have a duodenal cancer. I've actually seen someone with metastatic melanoma um, to that area of the duodenum presenting as 
jaundice in someone who had melanoma 10 years before. Wow, How's that's that scary. I mean, you don't want melanoma. Right? There's a take-home pearl. Um, and then I guess it could be, you know, cholangiocarcinoma, uh, sort of at the very end of the bile duct. Um, but what happened? I assume that you went after that with an ERCP? So she went to ERCP and it looked malignant okay. and she went to surgery and she actually had, I didn't even know this was an, a thing, but she had cancer of the ampulla vater. There's okay. simply an, you know, sure. there's adenomatous tissue there sure. and it was malignant. The good news for her is the prognosis for that's much better than for pancreatic carcinoma, yeah. the 50% cure rate, whereas for pancreatic carcinoma, it's nowhere near yeah. that high. And so it's been several years now. She had some complications postoperatively, but she's done well. And Great. so, so far, no recurrence. That's good news. Did she have a Whipple for that? Yes, she did. So you, you lose a lot. Okay. Wow. That's a great case. Uh, very interesting and happy she did well. Right. Okay. So fingerprints. Scott, you got a fingerprint? I do. So a palpable spleen, people can have splenomegaly and not be able to feel it. But if you can feel it, it's truly uh, significant for splenomegaly with a likelihood ratio of eight. Nobody can have splenomegaly that I can't feel. <laughs> I would like to differ with that, but okay, fine. Um, I'll just add to that, just right. so I have something to say in fingerprints, that that's not true for a palpable liver edge, um, meaning that a palpable liver edge can be normal. So if you feel a liver edge, you might want to do other things to scratch out the liver, maybe, um, you know, do liver function tests, but that's Unlike splenomegaly, that doesn't mean that the liver is abnormal. Right, because the liver can be lying low. Like COPDers often have enlarged lungs and then a low liver. Great point. I would actually say for people who are, you know, just kind of getting good at the physical exam, that when you're seeing someone who's got COPD, really interesting things to do with them is one, you know, measure diaphragmatic excursion, tap out those people's lung, and then have them take a really deep breath, measure how far their diaphragm goes. It's often very small. Recognize where their heart is shifted. You often hear their heart best in the epigastrium. And then I agree, you can almost always feel a liver edge in those people. And you get really good at feeling, you know, what does the edge of a liver feel like? Yeah. Now, it does seem to me that you're almost only going to see it to like one or two finger breasts. I start seeing people who are three or four finger breasts. It's almost always pathological. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't know the test characteristics on that, but I, I think that's definitely true. I sort of feel like you know, at this point, I kind of know what a normal liver edge feels like. And I kind of know what like... Oof, that's probably I didn't good. present you a patient who I saw once, I'm going to go on an aside here okay. once, who came into my office and I've never met him before. And I said, what's wrong? And he says, I don't feel well. And I said, what's wrong? And he goes, I don't feel well. I said, well, what sort of symptoms are you having? He goes, I don't feel well. I'm like, oh my goodness. So I finally asked him to take his shirt off. And as he takes his shirt off, across the room, I see a mass in his belly, across wow. the room. Wow. And when I went to examine him, I couldn't even tell what it was. It went all the way into his pelvis and across the midline. And it turned out it was his liver wow. from Bud Chiari. Wow. And it went all the way through his belly. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, I thought I'd be nice today and didn't give you that one. You're like Chatty Scotty today. I am Chatty Scotty today. Okay, okay. So, so are you trying to tell me to be quiet? <laughs> All right, so we've talked about the first one, which is hemolysis and Joberis. They can cause mild jaundice, but not marked jaundice. So I did have this patient with sickle cell anemia that presented in a very interesting way, which gets at this color of urine, where he was quite jaundiced when I saw him. And I walked into the room and also noticed that his urine was quite dark in color, which proved that he had conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. And it actually had been assumed prior to that that it was unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia from his hemolysis. But just looking at his urinal was a clue that something else was going on. And in fact, he'd formed a bilirubin stone in his gallbladder and was obstructing his common bile duct, causing jaundice from it. 
that's another very interesting, very um, instructive case, let's say. I think the one thing I might, um, I agree with you about hemolysis not causing marked jaundice. I think we probably have to differentiate or, or define, you know, what marked jaundice is, right? Because it's true, when you take care of people with sickle cell anemia in the hospital, you know, they're jaundiced, right? Right. But it is true when people, when when you see people with a billy of 18 or 20, it's really a completely different look. And that's really no matter what color skin they have. Right. You know, um, maybe my common misconception, and again, we sort of touched on this, is that well, actually we definitely touched on this, is that jaundice is always associated with dark urine, right? So dark urine does mean that there's conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Unconjugated bilirubin cannot be filtered. And I would say, you know, as we mentioned, not all dark urine is conjugated hyperbilirubinemia, right? There are lots of other things that make the urine change crazy colors. And people are not great at telling you perfectly that, like, this is root beer urine, you know, this is cranberry urine, this is iced tea urine, or I guess maybe just tea-colored urine. So, you know, hemoglobinuria, myoglobinuria, methemoglobin um, uh, urea, I guess meth hemoglobinemia, you know, those generally we think of as being, I guess, redder urines. Um, there are things that make the urine brown. Actually, I, I wish I had the website. There's a terrific uh, UCSF website, which has like urine colors. But the things I think about that make urine really brown, so some foods, fava beans, aloe, antimalarials, especially those which cause uh, hemolysis, porphyria, and glomerulonephritis, actually. You know, if you have glomerulonephritis with dysmorphic red cells, that can really cause brownish urine. So, so you ever seen porphyria? <laughs> Once. Really? Yes. Actually, from, I saw it via a loved one of mine who's a dermatologist um, who will show up on this podcast at some point, um, patient with porphyria in clinic that I got to. And what what do you cook? Fava be- I've never had fava beans. What do you eat them in? You are showing who's Italian in this conversation yes. and who's not. Yes. Um, I'll make you some someday. All right, deal. All right, so should we go to pet peeves? Pet peeves, go crazy. All right, so my first pet peeve is uh, one of the things that causes jaundice is obviously a stone in the common bile duct. And so when we see a patient like that, we know to image it. But many patients who have symptomatic biliary tract disease and cholecystitis also have stones in their common bile duct, and we need to look for those preoperatively. So any patient who has an elevated, even if they're not jaundice, but if their liver enzymes are elevated or they've had pancreatic pancreatitis or they have a dilated common bile duct, any of those things, not more than one, any of those things should make us look at the common bile duct before we go taking out their gallbladder. Sounds great. Sounds great. And for me, one word, transaminitis. God, you don't like that word? Just don't say that to me. <laughs> Why? Like you have an inflammation of your transaminases? It's the stupidest <laughs> thing in the world. It's like nails on the blackboard. It makes me grit my teeth. Oh, I can't stand it. And it's like a measure of what kind of a mood I'm in. Because if I'm kind of chill and relaxed and it's the beginning of rounds, I'll just sit and listen to it and let it go. If it's at the ends of rounds or I'm a little bit edgy... Well, what do you think of all the verbs that we've developed? Like, we're going to cath them, or we've, you know, we could do another podcast on words we don't like. I've written an article about that. You have, have you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's go on. Clinical pearls. So, um, I like to think of bodily fluids as the colors of life. <laughs> so, the colors of life. If your urine's dark, think about bilirubin in the urine. If the stool is light, actually it's light because bile's not getting to that. And for those of you who are biochemists, what happens is the bilirubin that gets excreted into the bowel is turned by bacteria into stercobilin, and that's what makes your stool brown. 
which is why when you have diarrhea and the bile moves quickly, it's still yellow. So in case any biochemists quiz you, you're now ready. And you can have greenish stool with really rapid transport for the same reason. Now you know. I don't want to get too much into this, but, you know, you don't have to get crazy about like, you know, I want to look at all the colors, but at least, you know, when you're rounding on people and the patient is unlucky enough to have a Foley catheter in, and maybe you're lucky enough that they do, you know, take a look at the urine. Take a look. You may learn something. We certainly do it with pleural fluid that we see lying around, sputum that we see next to the bed sometimes helps you. Okay, my clinical pearl. So you sort of dissed the differential diagnosis of unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. And I have to say, I sort of agree. It's not that interesting. You know, it's mostly hemolysis, and it might be acute hemolysis of unknown cause that you need to work up. It might be dyserythropoiesis um, that you know from the minute they walk in that, you know, this is someone with sickle cell anemia and a pain crisis. But do think of some other things that are around there. So extravasation of blood, um, you know, people can get a unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia from just like a huge, I don't know, retroperitoneal bleed or a complication of a cardiac catheterization as they begin to um, metabolize that, break that down. Um, Impaired uptake of unconjugated um, bilirubin. So you mentioned sepsis, heart failure, drugs. I think rifampin is probably the classic. So just make that differential diagnosis a little more complicated than you gave it credit for. (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, my next one is, you always have to keep in mind Tylenol. We, we alluded to this earlier. Tylenol is one of those things that if you're going to intervene, you need to intervene early because if you do it early, you can save the liver. If you do it too late, you're looking at liver transplant. So any patient presents with increased LFTs of any type, with any sort of psychiatric manifestation, any sort of overdose, you really need to be putting that at the top of your differential because it has such specific treatment early. Right. And it's especially important, I think, because of the fact that you know, we toss this piece of data around a lot that half of all acetaminophen intoxications are accidental. I think those break down into real accidental, you know, I'm taking Tylenol because I'm having pain and maybe I'm also drinking or maybe my liver function isn't perfect to begin with. And then there are the people who are, you know, sort of acting out and they're like, I'm going to have a suicide attempt as a cry for help, but I'm going to do it with Tylenol because psh- Right. And that can be just an absolute tragedy because um, not that not that a suicide that that was meant to be is not a tragedy, but um, you know it can be people who really don't want to hurt themselves who end up doing horrible um, injury to themselves. All right, so um, I guess the next one will be on alcohol liver disease. So when we see the AST much greater than the ALT, we think about liver disease. My understanding is because that's often they are uh, have a pyridoxin deficiency and they can't actually synthesize ALT very well. But in any case, uh, 70 to 80% of patients with alcoholic liver injury have uh, levels of greater than two of AST to ALT and levels of more than three are even more specific. Right. So just right. something to remember. Right, that that three to one is something that I take away that like when I see that ratio and I ask the person if they drink and they say no, I'm like, come on, right. <laughs> you know. I feel like I'm throwing out some maybe iffy data um, on this podcast because <laughs> I'm usually really careful about this, but 
this is something that I've just seen in so many places, and I, I've never really looked in great depth um, at where this comes from. But it's the whole thing about depression being the first symptom of pancreatic cancer. And a lot of this is obviously retrospective, and it's people who are probably depressed at the time because they have pancreatic cancer. But people have quoted as high as 45% of people, which I can't believe. But I have to say, if I had a middle-aged patient who came to me, who had never had issues with you know, depression or mental health, who all of a sudden at age 60 becomes depressed, I would at least think about that. Probably not to the point that I would be doing an MRCP, but probably to the point that I'd be examining them and checking LFTs. Interesting. You're scoffing. Well, no, no. <laughs> I'm just wondering. I've never done that, so I'm wondering what I would do with that, but it's worth a thought. Maybe you've learned something from me. Well, I wouldn't (laughs) go that far. So my last one is detecting uh, jaundice. So, you know, it's very hard in patients of color to look at skin sometimes and detect mild jaundice. So then we often look at the sclera, but the more pigmented your skin is, the more likely you're to have conjunctival staining from melanin, uh, which can make the sclera dark and hard to see whether it's not really yellow. So one technique I learned early on was if you lift someone's eyelids and ask them to look at the floor, you actually can see the white, the sclera of their eye that's always covered by their upper lid that doesn't get conjunctival pigmentation on it. And it's a good way to look for sclera lictoris in people who have uh, dark skin. Right. right, and this is generally looking at mild hyperbilirubinemia, right? Because right. the sclera be- start to become icteric, like two to three, right? That's right. So it's very, it's very low levels that you're not going to really see in anybody's skin. I find the most... Um, sensitive places for me. Sclera, as you said, sort of superior sclera are the best. Under the tongue helps me as long as you've got a really bright light to look there. Okay. And palms is the other thing. And I always like palms because I can act as a control, right? Um, so for looking for anemia, looking for icterus, I can put my hand up next to the patient. Um, and that helps quite a bit. So we hope you found this episode of S2D, the Symptom Diagnosis Podcast, useful and a bit enjoyable. If you like listening to us, please rate us on iTunes. We've heard that's important. Or maybe not. Don't rate us. Just give us five stars. If you want to chat, (laughs) tweet at me, at Adam Seafew. And as a reminder, our textbook, Symptom Diagnosis, an Evidence-Based Guide, takes a much deeper dive into how to think about and reason through the diagnosis of medical presentations. The book is available in print, through all the usual places, on your mobile device, and also available and fully searchable via the Access Medicine website, available worldwide from McGraw-Hill. A reminder that the cases that we discuss are drawn from our clinical experiences, but because protecting patient privacy is part of our oath, we never discuss actual patients, and most cases are composites. The music for the S2D podcast is courtesy of Dr. Malin Martinez. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.